Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global commerce. On today's programme, we're meeting the owner of a brand that's challenging the established notion of rare bookshops as dusty and old-fashioned repositories by modernising his family business with fresh talent. We have a number of booksellers that are 30, 31 or younger that are extremely talented, enthusiastic, knowledgeable, who will now make this is now their career. I mean, they're never leaving. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Pom Harrington is the owner of one of the world's most renowned rare bookshops, Peter Harrington, which has been selling to collectors for more than 50 years. Now the family business, started by his father with a modest stall at Chelsea Antiques Market, is a thriving international player in the rare books trade. And this week, they're making their debut at the Freeze Soul Art Fair. Pom, a pleasure to welcome you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. It's your first time at Midori House, but of course you have graced our airwaves before. Yes, you you kindly came to our shop in Dover Streets because we had a very special book to show and um, it was cheaper for you to come to us than us to bring the book here. So um, the insurance of a Shakespeare first failure is quite expensive. Well, look, I, I, I've got so many different things I want to ask you about. As a bibliophile, when you have something like that under your charge and you get to handle it and you get to show other book lovers it, is it the best thing in the world? Well, the Shakespeare first folio, which was published in 1623, and it's the reason why we know Shakespeare, it really is the pinnacle of what we do, particularly in the English-speaking world the birth of English language in, in, in pro, all those things. So they are very rare. They come to market very infrequently, especially nice copies, mm. very infrequently. And they often go through auctions. And it's rather nice to break the mould. And I think we're the first bookseller, British bookseller, certainly to have one in stock, as it were, for over 40 years. So it was a real privilege to be able to handle it and, importantly, sell it, So, which is actually what we're there for. And we find a new custodian for it. And it's interesting, I guess a bit of a theme we might keep coming back to if we talk about the the journey, the evolution of Peter Harrington Rare Books is, is firsts, a first in 40 years, a first this very week at Freeze Soul. Tell me about international expansion. I know you're not going to be in Korea, you're going to, but you're going to be stateside. It's a globetrotting business, of course, but talk to me a little bit about why it's important to constantly you know, keep registering these firsts, new markets, new pushes, new avenues for the for the business to discover. Absolutely. So we, we've always, certainly for the last 15 years, we've had a very strong policy of getting out there. As a friend of mine called it, missionary work. We go out there and we take rare books of what best of what we do. And we go to places that you wouldn't necessarily think of be interested in rare books. Now, I'd say half our business probably in America, and that would be probably not too surprising to people, and end in the UK. But we have been growing a lot in the Middle East. We do stuff down in Australia, and we do books in Asia. And since COVID, we've not really had the opportunity to exhibit or do any shows in Asia. So Free Soul was an opportunity for us to go out there and, again, expose what we do, which is amazing early printed books, English, but also the Asian material we have, the Western books printed on discovery, discoveries of China and Asia and Japan, and etc. So to take those books into that marketplace, because there are new institutions, there are new collectors out there, and they really appreciate you going to them. And I think it's an important part of what we do. We do need to take the books with us and 
to those countries and show the books. They won't always come to us in London. And talk to me a bit about how you decide what to put on display. I guess, obviously, uh, freeze, uh, free soul, but just generally when you're travelling around, what's that curation process like? Obviously, you have a huge team with all kinds of different expertise, and I know you speak really well about how you learn from your colleagues about their areas of expertise and so on because I guess you can't just do your favourites from every time what's that process of curation I guess what's that like I think there's two aspects of it one is and particularly I think for this show we're doing this week in Seoul is a little bit of experimentation we've not done it before so we take probably half what we're taking is Asia related so those history books about early 17th century we've got a 8th century Japanese scroll we have mega early printing 500 years before European printing but then we also have some quite famous international books from the West and really I strongly suspect that's probably what we'll do much better out there they're much probably much more interested in probably buying what Western books that we're famous for so we'll take a, a Gutenberg leaf which is the first printed book a leaf from that I think we have a Dickens manuscript I think we've taken a Harry Potter first edition with a presentation by J.K. Rowling so a little bit of experimentation once we get to know a market then we can really target we understand what the local sort of interest would lie and it really makes a difference I can give you a good example last year we had this most fantastic James Bond collection all the books all signed by Ian Fleming and everything but amongst it was a collection of about a hundred film scripts which is not quite that's a different thing from a rare book inscribed. And I took it to London, and no joy. I took it to Boston, no joy. I took it to LA in February, and, oh, there's a surprise. LA loves film scripts. And in the first 24 hours of the show, we had three people all over it, and we sold it the next day. And having had not much interest in London or the East Coast of America. So I think locality of where you're going really comes into it. I think that's quite a good illustration of how it can work. And also taking it there. It really intrigues me, Pom, how you talk about discovering markets and there's an obvious sort of entrepreneurial elan to your enthusiasm for growing the business and so forth. But how do you think of yourself? Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Uh, Do you consider yourself a businessman? You're clearly a book lover and I know you've spoken about that before. But also... You're the steward of a family business, and there's this story that goes back through your father and your uncle. So are you the custodian of a family business? Does it matter how you think about yourself? Do you spend much time? I know you're busy, so maybe you don't spend that much time thinking about it. I do think about it. I'm definitely very proud of the fact that we're a family business. My father started the business in 1969, and it's from nothing. And he started on instincts and just looking at a book and going, buying it for X and going, well, that's a great book. I think I can sell it for 2X or whatever it may be. That's how it started. And he was he was successful. But the book business has changed quite a lot. And when I joined in the 90s, the internet, computerization, actually, the cataloging of books and this revolution. I mean, when I first joined, we were still using faxes to send a quote out. Then an email arrives. So my father, I put a computer on his desk and literally just looked at me like, what the hell are you doing? And he had no interest in computers. And when I asked for a couple of thousand pounds to put a website in 98, I mean, he was like, well, OK, I'll trust you, but didn't understand it. This better pay for itself. Well, and it did. And it really did. In fact, within two months, we had a huge order from Asia of all places. And it allowed us, I think, to be ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. I think because of my age, I was nineteen, twenty when I first started. In my 20s, most of my peers in the trade are actually much older at the time. 
And I think the first 10 years of my book selling life, I was the youngest book dealer before someone else came along. So <laughs> I think we're very fortunate in timing that I did embrace the internet and what opportunities that gives, which is a 24-hour shop to the whole world. Clearly, I was going to ask you about the challenge, well, the opportunities, the challenges of, of the ongoing digital development. If I talk to gallerists, particularly in contemporary art, say, there's this very common narrative around the potency of how democratising the digital platforms are. They bring products to people who otherwise wouldn't get to look at them and how that's also brought a greater transparency to the business. Let's talk a little bit about that because there is still, still, I think, a perception, a misperception that this is dusty shelves and you need to know the code to get in, let alone read the room to work out what's for sale and what's the price tag. What do you think about that? Where are we at at that journey? Well, I think one of my missions is changing that, really breaking it. It helps that I was not as young as I was, but it does help that I was young and the people I employ. I suppose about 10, 11 years ago, we changed our policy slightly of how to to find new staff or new people to get involved. And we decided just to go with graduates. And we started our first one 11 years ago. And we looked for the English major qualifications. You know, And actually, very fortunately, we had this guy come out of Oxford, fantastic literature and he was just enthusiastic and he discovered a book and that was kind of his interview if you like and I was like sure you know what come involved and it worked quite well we sort of did the training and the next year we took on two and we've done this every year so the point of that is we built up a really fantastic staff who are young enthusiastic knowledgeable being trained by these other guys that work for me who are much older much more experienced and it's been passed on down but if you come to our shops you visit us you will get a sort of very breezy, fresh, different approach. We love people to come in and look at the books, to handle the books. We have an open bookshelf policy. So everything's there and everything's catalogued. Everything that we do is checked by hand. So everything's picked by hand when we buy it. We don't clear a house. You know, we bespoke the buy the books because we think it's good. We check everything, we catalogue it, we photograph it. It's clearly priced. It's on the shelf. So transparency of what you're saying. Mm. And that translates online as well. Mm. So and I think it's also much easier to describe a book online with a physical description in writing, but also the in photographs and now videos of course, which we do and social media and the book comes alive a lot more. But I think all that moves us on from the J.R. Hartley and fly fishing. <laughs> you, know. uh, you have to Google, some of our international audience <laughs> might need to Google Google that one. It's really interesting the way you describe that process of integrating people into the business. It is family business. You talk about the passing on of, of knowledge. And I don't know whether that was a reaction or a, a nod to the fact that it has this heritage as a family concern that you took people on. If we go back to that moment when you decided to just take on graduates because i know it's counterintuitive i guess you you might say oh well look the next stage of growth we've got to get the best experts and we need to find people who've been doing this for 20 years but it's quite a small pool actually of knowledge Mm. so i I know everybody there's not that many booksellers around relatively compared to other industries so you, you train them yourself and we've been quite successful at that and we've actually very proudly can say that we have a number of booksellers that are 30 31 or younger that are extremely talented, enthusiastic, knowledgeable, who will now make, this is now their career. I mean, they're never leaving. That's the thing about bookselling. I think if you get past the first five years, yeah, you're done. You're, you're, it, a, you're, a, you're a lifer. You're a lifer, I'm afraid, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about difficulties then. If we go back to 2020, you mentioned that you couldn't get out to fairs and to meet certainly your, your global clients with the same freedom. With the proviso that obviously people could still, you could still trade, you could buy and, and sell quite readily online. What 
sort of challenge did that pose? I guess almost on a more sort of human level. Was it existential? How how worried did you get if we go back? What now? Three and a half years or so. Oh, funny enough, we we started feeling it February 2020 because the markets all crashed. And look, bottom line is we sell quite valuable books and people with money, and they all suddenly went. Oh, the markets all crashed. It, it did go quite quiet in February and March, obviously. But actually, by the end of March, we found life coming back and mm. emails and. We basically had three of us that went in because someone's got to handle books. We became a mail order business and it gradually picked up. And you know what? By May 2020, we were doing very normal business. Wow. And actually, we ended that's up. Pre- that's pretty swift, isn't it? And yeah. we ended up with about a third of the staff coming in. And we just had our own little bubble in the shop and multi floors and multi rooms. So we sort of kept ourselves apart and we functioned. And life goes on and we made it work. I mean, I was playing taxi driver. I was taking books <laughs> to my cataloguers all around West London one day, East London the next day, and then picking up the books they catalogued last week. So the shipper can. Yeah, we went back to basics. Uh, the traffic was light, wasn't it? For Fantastic. A, for a while. Had so much fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's great. Look, I, Probably your fans, well, some of your global fans will know the premise as well. Certainly some of your London fans or just people who know the trade or know that geography will be familiar with your premises. Tell us a bit about the actual physical setup, because I think book lovers love to hear about what's where and how it all works. Tell us a little bit about it. So, so our mothership, if you like, is the, is the 100 Fulham Road. And Peter Harrington's been there since 1997. And we have, I think, about 32, 35 people working in there. Half of those... You should really know this, Pom, to be honest. <laughs> well, it's moving. It moves around a little bit. So we have basically all the books that we buy go there first. And that is where they are checked and catalogued and where we prepare all our catalogues, all the photography, all the shipping goes out there. We opened in 2014 a gallery space in Mayfair at 43 Dover Street. And the reason why is because our books were hidden in Chelsea. No one got to see them. And so we wanted to bring them out and make it much easier for people to come and visit. And so if you come to Dover Street, it's much more, I guess, organised and less cluttered. Because <laughs> Fulham Road is kind of a bit du- boxes and dusty at times. The books presented in Dover Street is probably the nicest feeling. And we keep the same ethos. It's still the same shelving and it actually looks the same. It's just it's probably a bit easier to look at. Well, I asked you this question about entrepreneurship versus mm. being a custodian of business or a businessman or whatever, how you consider your, your role. What about another metric, which is success? I guess crudely, there's a P&L and the business has to do well to endure and support all the people that you describe in that infrastructure and to allow you to continue to acquire significant works and, and help them continue their onward journey. But has how you measure success, POM, changed over the last, I don't know, 20 years? What kind of metrics do you use? And I don't mind you being, you know, even if some of them are a bit more touchy-feely and you talk a bit about purpose and that kind of satisfaction, what does it look like for you? You do use numbers to gauge success and it is a measure of success. And the question is that you do have to be profitable, otherwise you can't buy more books. And fundamentally, we're book addicts. That's basically what we do. We just want to buy as many books as we possibly can and put them out there. And the more books you have, the more you sell, and it's a cycle. And that's kind of really been the philosophy. Booksellers don't have money, they have books. Every spare money we have, we just buy bigger books, more expensive books. And I think that's the big change over the last 20, 25 years. My father passed away 20 years ago. So my father came now and saw the business. He would be generally shocked by the quantity of high-value books that we hold. Not values, probably one metric, the quality of having a Shakespeare folio, having a Kelmscott Chaucer, which is the most beautiful book of the English produced in the 19th century, or a Charles Dickens manuscript relief, or whatever it may be. We do hold a significant number of these items in our stock, and I think that's the change, and that's 
probably the biggest measure of our success that we can go to Seoul mm. a career and put on a fantastic display of 50 items but still not empty the shops you can come to the shop and still see amazing things. Well, and surprise people. And I love the eclecticism of your collections and your collecting. And you, you've said a few things before that I find really interesting, one of which was that if you find a volume, even one you know well, even indeed one you hold a number of copies of, if it's priced correctly, you'll acquire it. And some people might say, well, that's counterintuitive. Why would you add a fourth, a fifth, a sixth copy. But this speaks, I think, to this thing, which is there's a a value inherent in what you're looking at and a good deal is a good deal. Does that make you a little bit of an outlier in the industry to work in that way? Or do you have other contemporaries who do the same? There are some others that do the same. But, you know, sometimes these books, there's no warehouse. There's no wholesaler I can go and tap up and sort of go and restock. So I'll give a good example. One of our bread and butter books that we sell will be a first edition of Roald Dahl's Matilda. They will sell from anything from 400 to 600 pounds, depending on how nice the copy is. We will find them at various prices that we know we can then sell at that price. Come October, November, December, we will sell probably a dozen of them because of Christmas presents. And so, yeah, we, we will buy them as we see them and we'll line them up. Our experience tells us what sells mm. and we do back it. There can be changes in fashion, of course. You're careful not to catch a falling market. It's quite rare in our world more likely that the book business has fundamentally been growing. And since COVID, actually, significantly, there's no question the market's really moved. There's many more people following it, many more people buying it through that time in COVID that people had to sit down and well, hopefully, yeah, look they around. Do a bit, and they did a bit more reading. And, they did a bit more reading yeah. and some did some shopping. And actually, there's no question there was a whole new bunch of collectors that started collecting and they haven't stopped some of those people. So, yeah, I think the market's very buoyant. And therefore, yeah, we believe in our industry. We believe in our books. And, yeah, assuming that I have the capital, I keep going. I sense there's not loads of it sitting around because it keeps getting redeployed. And it's funny you mentioned Roald Dahl. I know that he's a personal sort of favourite of yours. And, again, I read something you said about you were an enthusiast first and foremost and you had these volumes, but then it becomes a collection. What happens with that poem? I'm interested almost from a sort of psychological point of view when it stops being a pure passion play I love the stories, I love the illustrations, whatever it might be. And it becomes like, now I must build the collection. Does something in your psychology almost shift? Because you've, you've, you've talked about this a little bit with your uh, doll collection. Well, I, you? the Roald Dahl, so I have been collecting Roald Dahl in a, probably 25 years. And it started with me showing a bit of interest. I think I was 19. My father in the shop had an inscribed copy of The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. I think the price of the book was £50 at the time. And I happened to like one story in there. And I expressed my interest. And anyway, for Christmas, my father gave it to me. So we started. And from that point on, I started putting the collection together. And then 20 years ago, Roald Dahl was relatively inexpensive. It was definitely my entry point. I could buy these books, £50 or £100. And then you discovered a signed ones could be 150 It has grown. Now, obviously, my ability to buy more expensive books has developed as you get older. And my access to more valuable things. But it's been a couple of pivotal moments when I had to decide... And I guess one of them was I'd never spent more than a £1,000 on a book from this collection. And I was offered something that was really amazing. It was one of the few manuscripts of Roald Dahl in private hands. And it was the screenplay of You Live Twice with these tight scripts all corrected by Roald Dahl. And it was offered to me for about £30,000. I personally could not afford that. The company could afford it. But then it changes the position of what this is. And I had to make a decision. I wants it like mad. And so I walked away from it. And so I said no. 
And I really regret it, actually. I really regret the <laughs> I ones can you say, don't I can get. really sense that, yeah. So that kept it, me as a collector. But since then, I have developed it. I think offer the same opportunities now, I'd make it happen. And the other twist we've got is we are writing the bibliography for Roald Dahl currently. My colleague, Phil Errington, Dr. Phil Errington, he wrote the bibliography for J.K. Rowling. So we're working on Roald Dahl, and it's based on my collection. So working with Phil, we're now filling the holes. And by the end of the process, I think we would fill the whole thing out. Then my game is to upgrade as I go along to the best inscribed copy. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Just upgrading, make it better, make it better. It's a bit obsessive. I'm not sure financially it makes <laughs> yeah, much sense, yeah. but that's not what I'm You've doing. You've gone past it. that point now. Yeah. From. One thing that's funny, we talked earlier about this sort of digital and how transparent it makes. My dad's also quite an enthusiast and a very, not quite on this, this sort of level. But I remember being, as it was then, dragged into secondhand bookshops. And he would quite often be able to find surprisingly exciting things on the shelves. Can you still do that? Because occasionally I'll browse, you know, the shelves in a charity shop, for example. I think people are too savvy because the internet means that you can check things if you have half a suspicion. Has the day of finding the amazing inscribed first edition for 50 pence, has that day gone forever or can that still happen? Probably? It still can happen. Where does uh, it happen, if you don't mind me asking? Well, funny enough, <laughs> someone, someone walked into our shop this week and funny enough, it's back to Roald Dahl again. But the guy walked in and he had a Roald Dahl book and had been signed by Roald Dahl and Quinton Blake on the front end paper. And it's quite a dark end paper and you couldn't see the inscription. And he bought it in a secondhand shop for a pound. And they missed the a fact. A pound? That, yeah. And it missed the fact that it was signed and it was a first edition. And he sold it to us for, I think, £1,100. Okay. So he did fine and we will sell it and we'll do fine. But yeah, he, <laughs> he bought it like two weeks beforehand. Can happen. At the highest scale, it probably is what gets us out of bed as a book dealer. And all book dealers are a bit like this. What are you going to find tomorrow? And it's why we love book fairs, because you never know what you, you what's never on the know next page as it is. Yeah. Well, is there, a, I mean, you've mentioned already some of these exceptional items that you've had the privilege almost to be the, the temporary custodian, I guess, of. And I'm sure in your own collections you, you have others. But are there out there particular kind of holy grails, not necessarily in the role of Dolphin, but things where you have that daydream that you would find in a, I don't know, yeah. We said you don't do kind of house currencies, but in, in some unlikely circumstance, you find it sort of in a box in an attic somewhere. Is there a particular thing that one day you think, it could be this, it could be that? Yeah, but you never predict it. It'd be the thing you never thought of. But we have had things come our way. I think the, the famous one we had, and I have told the story before, the email we have, I guess that's not discovery, but the person discovered it, was pulling off the shelf and it was a Frankenstein first edition volume one which is like amazing that's rare but when you opened it up it was inscribed to lord Byron from mary shelley which okay. is completely insane and, and again it, what uh, the house clearance or well, can you remember the provenance of- oh yeah absolutely so it basically came from the jay family and lord jay actually was a cabinet minister in, in the 70s and it was his grandson who post oxford was basically helping granny out clearing the shells and he found it and they took it to the bodily and the bodily went that is authentic. I uh, would love to have it, and they, but they want to be given it. And the family went, well, quite like to sell it, actually. <laughs> and so we had this email offering us the book. And I did the negotiations with Granny about how we're going to sell it for them and stuff. And then once we signed the contract, the, uh, the Granny goes, don't suppose my grandson can have a job to you? <laughs> and he was our first graduate. No, really? Yeah, because oh, my wow. instinct was if he's good and smart enough to pick that book out and go, 
That's a book. That's come this way. And by right. the way, he's still with us today and doing very well. I was going to say, and he was, still he doing was very kind well. of your employee number one. That's a brilliant story. I love that. So it, it can happen. It can the happen. The bargains can be found. The amazing things are out there. So people need to engage. And there's no secret to it. You just well, have to be there is no curious. Secret. And... Definitely curiosity is the main thing. And I think where we will discover more secrets is probably the access to the internet. I think it's going back to look what else you had that stray inscription that you never understood, who that ownership name was in the title page, this old book. And now you can Google it. And even compared to 10 years ago, the information out there. So we're actually discovering new things on books that we've... We bought a collection back recently that we re-catalogued, if you like, because we found inscriptions that we couldn't work out 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And now we know who they are and they relate to the book. Famous person. So that's the discovery. It's not just the obvious thing or some dusty bookshelf. It's, and actually libraries. I went to the Bodleian last year and the Bodleian decided to go through their shelves again. You know, the boxes have empty. You know, what's there? I bet that's and some extraordinary been, Yeah, they found away. all kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, there's different places to look rather than just those sort of Oxfam shops, which Oxfam is quite savvy these days. They do well, check this everything. Is thing. <laughs> they've, they've, got their own, they've got their own experts. Listen, I can tell, upon the things that excite you are exactly that thing. You never know what's on the next page and other literary metaphors that I can butcher. But what keeps you motivated? Because you are enjoying success, you're in new markets, the sort of Peter Harrington rare books empire the little dynasty it's obviously in in rude health so i guess you're motivated by that insatiable curiosity but what other things excite you and keep you engaged and because you'll spend a lot of time on the road which is pretty tiring what's your motivation what does that look like from day to day i think it's probably just instinctive of wanting to keep going we bought last year a bookshop in america so we bought a company called william reese company which is the famous dealer in americana which is books about america and the Bill Reese or William Reese, uh, the original owner, passed away five years ago. So we bought the business from his widow. I didn't look for that. It sort of came along and I couldn't resist trying. What's it like to actually own and buy a business in America and incorporate it into our own with a partner in America? I enjoy that challenge. At times I go, what have I done? Because <laughs> it's a of aggravation, of course. You know, you can't do things like that without having aggravation. But it's a fascinating challenge. I think I'm enjoying bringing books in. I think it's what we can bring in. It's what we can find I do enjoy the fact that we've got this amazing group of younger, talented booksellers that we've told that's continuing it, and they love it. And that's really infectious. And so I sort of sound silly, you couldn't do it for them. I'm not doing it for them, just for them. But it does definitely motivate you to keep going. But while it's fun, and it is fun, and yeah, jumping around, you know, we fly all over the place. I went to Melbourne, as I said to you earlier, in July, and it was a really good week. We met book collectors, I get to most amazing libraries, go to private home libraries. Melbourne University Library had a thing on. A bit nerdy, maybe, but that's kind of what we like. <laughs> Pom, we've got Freeze this week. Mm. Um, you've obviously got these other expansions which were going to occupy lots of your time and I'm sure energy. What should we be looking out for next? I don't know, with a longer time horizon, later in the year? One thing we are doing is we're expanding the antique collector shows like Freeze. So Freeze Souls debut for us. We've done Freeze Masters the last few times and we'll do it again not in london in october but we're going to do two new shows next year we're signed up to do the winter show at the armory in new york in january and we're going to do tfaf maastricht as well the other things that we've been very successful at and really enjoy producing and i think they're really high quality is our catalogs there's a tremendous amount of scholarship that goes into those catalogs and they really are worked on we produce one a month in the next couple of months, we have a basic a book on human knowledge, and it's re-describing how books that 
might know from the Gutenberg Bible, but really is how humans have captured knowledge and how to present knowledge. And then we've also got a book about the cult, and it's from the other side, which is quite fun because there's all kinds of weird books in there. <laughs> so those are the two big things we've got at the moment. That was Pom Harrington, owner of Peter Harrington Rare Books. You can learn more about the business by heading to peterharrington.co.uk. That's it for this episode of the programme. We'll return at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka on Fridays. The Entrepreneurs was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard. You can listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine and read more about better businesses every month. You can always follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. If you want to get in touch, write to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.